Well, greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach Old and New Testament and Systematic Theology at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I'm so thankful for all the new listeners that are listening to Understanding Christianity. Uh, So if you are benefiting from this podcast, would you please give me a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this, and also share it on your social media. Maybe you can share it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, I'd love for you to get the message out if you find Understanding Christianity to be a beneficial podcast. I really am truly appreciative of all of those who are listening. Uh, I really just really appreciate it, and I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate uh, the support and encouragement I get from you as listeners. As you know, I interact a lot with provisionism, and I do take very seriously the desire to accurately represent their viewpoint and to interact with some of their key argumentation. I think a lot of times, because it's such a fairly new view in church history, and a lot of times Calvinists tend to think that provisionists are Arminian, there seems to be some confusion as to what the real points of contention are. And so what I want to do today is I want to interact with some of the provisionisms, especially some of the statements by leading provisionists, Leighton Flowers, on their understanding of the role of the law in Christianity, the role of the law. Now, there's one key passage of Scripture that divides Calvinists from provisionists in terms of total inability. Now, if you're new to the podcast, uh, let me just kind of explain to you that the major distinction or difference between Calvinism and provisionism is the doctrine of total inability. We in the Reformed camp understand that the Bible teaches that we are spiritually dead from birth and as a result of Adam's fall into sin every single person is born morally and spiritually unable to come to faith in Christ without sovereign grace without the effectual call now in contrast to that provisionists deny total inability from birth They believe that we still retain libertarian free will and that we can choose to accept or reject the gospel appeal when it's presented to us and we can choose positively or negatively for Christ based upon libertarian free will. There's no moral or spiritual inability that we're born with that has to be overcome by sovereign regeneration. And so one of the key passages of Scripture that we go to in understanding the doctrine of total inability is Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. So let me read this, and I'm going to come back to it later on, but I'm going to set the stage with this passage of Scripture. Because oftentimes provisionists will say, this is the proof text you Calvinists used to prove total inability, and that's not what this passage of Scripture is talking about. So let me just read it, and then we'll uh, talk about some things related to the provisionist understanding of the role of the law in the life of a Christian, or the role of the law in general, and how we understand that. So Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. 
Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, we look at this passage of Scripture, and we understand that this is talking about the unregenerate person. The mind that's set on the flesh is an unregenerate person. I've heard provisionists and others say that this is not talking about an unregenerate person, that a, a person can freely choose to set their mind on the flesh. They can freely choose to set their mind on the spirit. This is not talking about the distinction between an unregenerate person and a regenerate person. So let me just lay my cards out on the table. I believe Paul is talking about an unregenerate person. A person whose mind is set on the flesh is an unregenerate person. They are dead in sins. They are hostile to God. And notice that in verse 8 it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So Paul says that those who are in the flesh, the unregenerate person, cannot. So there's an inability there. Cannot do two things cannot submit to God's law, and cannot please God. So we look at this passage of Scripture and say, okay, this clearly teaches moral and spiritual inability of an unregenerate person whose mind is set on the flesh, who's hostile to God. There's an inability. What's the inability? They cannot submit to God's law, and they cannot please God. And the provisionist comes along and says, now wait a minute. Just because it says you cannot Submit to God's law does not mean that you cannot repent and believe if the gospel appeal is given. This just says you can't fulfill the obligations of the Ten Commandments. You can't, you can't submit to God's law in the sense that, that you, can't, you can't earn your salvation by obeying the law. Now, what I want to address is I've seen um, a lot of the provisionist arguments but one of the things that I do not see them hold to in their theology is the covenant of works framework. Now, obviously, the covenant of works is something within the Reformed tradition that we hold to because we, we believe it's taught in Scripture. It's in our confessions, especially the Westminster Confession, the confession I hold to, which is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. It's not as, as overt in the 1689, but as a Reformed Baptist, I hold to a covenant of works. I don't think that the provisionists either interact with the covenant of works, I've not seen them outright deny it, but I want to address two major objections or two assertions, or two questions that the provisionists pose to us as Calvinists. Okay, so the first involves the role of the law. And so they would say that we as Calvinists, this is number one, we as Calvinists need to demonstrate that it was God's intention for us to fulfill the law's demands to attain righteousness. In other words, what Leighton Flowers says and his assertion is, and I'm quoting him here, God did not send the law with the expectation that we could actually fulfill its demands. That's not the purpose of the law. Okay, so that's the, that's the assertion number one. 
So assertion number one is that God did not actually expect us to fulfill the law's demands. That wasn't an expectation of God. It was not God's intention for us to fulfill the law's demands in order for us to attain righteousness. So I'm going to address that first assertion. The second assertion, the second question, comes from that understanding, and it's the whole issue of, does ought mean can? And so the, the, the question that the provisionist asks us is, why would God command sinners to repent and believe if they cannot due to total inability? Would that make God unjust to require a person to respond to something that they can't, be, that they can't fulfill? Can God hold those responsible who don't come in faith if the reason they don't come in faith is due to God's sovereign decree of them not being able to from birth? And so Leighton Flowers would say this, quote, basic common sense tells us that if one ought to do something, he can do it. This is especially true if one is punished for his failure to do that which is expected. So the argument from the provisionist is that should implies could. And what they would say is is that we need to demonstrate that it was actually God's intention for us to fulfill the law's demands in order for us to attain righteousness. So I'm going to address two issues related to the law. Number one Was it God's intention for us to fulfill the requirements of the law in order to attain righteousness? They say that we have to demonstrate that. In other words, they deny that and say it's the Calvinist burden of proof to to, to demonstrate that it was God's intention for us to fulfill the obligations of the law in order to attain righteousness. And number two, we have to also demonstrate that there is such a thing as moral and spiritual ability in the sense that if God commands something to happen or God commands for us to do something, we must, by common sense, have the ability to carry it out. And so really this comes to the heart of the covenant of works. So I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And again, I have not seen the provisionist Um, clearly interact with the covenant of works. I don't hear them talk about the covenant of works. I don't know if they outright deny it. I don't know if they affirm it. I just don't see that in their framework talked about much. But it's it's really at the heart of Reformed theology, the covenant of works. So maybe you're, you're new to Reformed theology and you don't quite understand what I mean by the covenant of works. This is a new term to you. Maybe you've grown up in traditional Southern Baptist or maybe just you're, you're, you're basic evangelical and you've not grown up or you're not familiar with Reformed theology and this whole idea of covenant of works just sounds a little weird to you. Let me explain to you where we get this biblically. So it goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this is the very first command in Scripture given by the Lord God to Adam pre-fall. Now God is not issuing the Ten Commandments written in stone, but God is issuing a command. And what's the command? 
You can eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat of that. And what's the consequence if you do? You'll surely die. Now, let's talk about the, second, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, because I want to bring in the confessions here, because, again, let me just talk about the confessions of faith. The confessions of faith are not inerrant, they're not infallible, but yet they are written by a large group of theologians over a period of time to synthesize or summarize key doctrines that we believe. And so we're not holding the confession of faith on par with Scripture, but it is helpful to refer to the confessions because at least for the past 400 years, Baptists have held to the 1689, as well as Presbyterians and others in the Reformed uh, tradition, theirs being the Westminster, also the Canons of Dort and and the, um, the Three Forms of Unity. But let's just talk about the Second London Baptist Confession. This is in chapter four under creation. It says this, they, talking about Adam and Eve, they had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. Even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Okay, the confession is clearly stating that in the garden, when God issued this command, they had the law on their hearts. They had the power to obey that law. God gave them a command. God gave them the law. And yet they had the ability to transgress that because their will was subject to change. In other words, they were born in a state of innocence in the sense that they could possibly attain righteousness if they would have obeyed that law, or they could have fallen from that state of innocence by transgressing that law. So let's go to chapter 6 in the Confession, The Fall of Mankind and Sin and Its Punishment, paragraph 1. God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it but threatened death if they broke it. So again, the language of the confession is using the word righteous law here. So they're using the term law, even though the word law does not show up in Genesis chapter 2, we understand the wording law comes from the fact that God made a command. God issued a command to Adam. God is giving his law to Adam. It's not the Ten Commandments written on stone but it's the law written on their heart coming from the very mouth of God. So let's just kind of look here at Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, I like to refer to the Lord God as the sovereign potter. And the reason I like to call him the sovereign potter is because he is the one that created the heavens and the earth, but he fashioned Adam from the ground as if this imagery of the potter fashioning clay. And so God, the sovereign potter, enters into a covenant relationship with Adam. So what's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties where there are commands and stipulations and blessings and cursings. In other words, if one partner in the covenant fails to live up to his end of the agreement, things go very badly. So how is this covenant between God and Adam structured? Let's think about this. God tells Adam that he's free to eat of any tree of the garden. Now, this is not an unfair test of obedience. If you think about it, this is generosity and goodness. 
God is not withholding the maximum from Adam, but the minimum is what's forbidden. He can eat of everything in the garden except one tree. So in the covenant of works here, we see that Adam serves as the representative for the entire human race. God enters into a covenant with Adam with legally binding conditions. So what are the conditions? What what are the conditions of this covenant? Adam must pass this test of obedience and not eat from the tree. If he passes the test, he can enjoy eternal life with God in his upright state. If he fails the test, then he plunges not only himself, but the entire race into rebellion and sin against God. So the punishment or the curse for disobeying this covenant is death. Because God says that in the day that you eat of it, Adam, you will surely die. In other words, death, physical death, is the penalty for disobedience in this test. So if there is a punishment of death for disobedience, it is implied that there is the blessing of life if Adam obeys and passes the test and holds up his end of the covenant. The tree of life next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil is there to remind us that Adam would probably not experience physical death, but he would spend eternity with God in this perfect condition. Now, why is this called a covenant of works? This covenant is conditioned upon Adam's obedience or his works, his obedience. Adam, as our representative, would find blessing and eternal life based upon his obedience, his work in fulfilling the obligations of God's law. On the flip side, he would find a curse and death if he did not obey God's law. Now, you see this more in detail, more more in chapter 3, in detail that Adam does not obey. Adam fails the test. Adam breaks the covenant. He brings sin and death into the world. He's guilty before God of rebellion. And since he's the representative of every single one of us, we are born guilty and under condemnation and spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. That's a discussion for another day. That's the issue of original sin and imputed guilt. But what I'm talking about right now is the covenant of works. Now, in the book of Hosea, the nation of Israel is held liable for breaking the covenant with the Lord. They were a rebellious people. And I want you to listen to how Hosea mentions Adam's breaking of the covenant of works. Hosea 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they, that's Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Okay, that brings up a question. Okay, Hosea the prophet's addressing the nation of Israel, saying, you've broken the covenant with the Lord. Now, he could have just said, you've broken the covenant with the Lord, but he takes it all the way back to Adam and makes a connection there. Like Adam transgressed the covenant. So you have to ask the question, what covenant did Adam transgress? Well, the covenant of works, the covenant that God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So the covenant of work shows us that Adam failed the test and brought sin into the world. 
in that we need a second Adam, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, who would redeem us from being under condemnation. Jesus is the second Adam who comes to save us from our sins. Now, the Westminster Confession, which is the Presbyterian document, in chapter 7 on God's covenant with man, this clearly states the covenant of works. So the Westminster Confession is a little bit more explicit and robust in in understanding the covenant of works than the 1689. So let me read to you how the Westminster Confession summarizes this. So here's from the Westminster Confession. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, you have a lot of theology packed into that short little statement. It talks about the covenant of works, that if Adam did meet the covenant of works and obey, he would have earned him and his posterity life. But since he failed, he brought about the fall. And so the Lord ordained a second covenant called the covenant of grace, Now, the covenant of grace does not require obedience to the law. The covenant of grace, all that's required is faith in Christ Jesus. And notice that the Westminster Confession says that this faith comes from the Holy Spirit who makes us willing and able to believe. So it addresses total inability in the covenant of works right there in the Westminster Confession. So the Westminster Confession is making the statement that because of Adam's failure to uphold the covenant of works, he plunged himself and all his posterity, all humanity, into spiritual death. We are born unable to come to faith in Christ because of our deadness and sin. And so in the covenant of grace, God does not require obedience to the law, but God requires faith. And that faith that God requires is given to us through the Holy Spirit's effectual call to make us willing and able to believe, which assumes that before salvation, before regeneration, before the effectual call, we were not willing to believe and we were not able to believe. So it's, a, it's interesting that in the covenant of works statement and in the covenant of grace statement in the Westminster Confession, there is woven into that total inability. And and the need for the Holy Spirit to make us willing and able to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 5.12, Paul gives commentary on what happened in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's the point. Because of Adam's sin, every one of us is born under the covenant of works. We are guilty and we're hardwired to somehow want to earn our salvation 
by being a good person or through trying hard to follow the rules. The covenant of works today shows us that we in no way can do this and that we fail every time just like Adam did and Adam was created upright. So what I'm trying to demonstrate from Scripture, from Genesis chapter 2 and Romans chapter 5, is that in the covenant of works, God did require absolute obedience to the law as a way to attain righteousness and life. That was God's intention for Adam in the covenant of works. Adam failed. Adam failed that. And so now we need the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. In the covenant of grace... The ability to come to faith in Christ is part of the covenant of grace in the effectual call by the Holy Spirit to the elect to grant them repentance and faith. Now let's go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, because Paul is going to address the role of the law in the life of believers and unbelievers alike, just the role of the law. So Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Let's read that together. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So in verses 10 through 12, Paul paints a picture of reality that shows this devastating dilemma that many people try to overcome. And he gives two main points under this heading. Basically, the first thing he says is, if you want to be right before God, you must obey the law perfectly. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27, which was an interesting story in Israel's history. You go back to Deuteronomy 27, Moses commanded the people to keep the whole commandment of God. And as a dramatic way to show how impossible it was to keep the law and the devastating consequences of breaking the law, he divided the 12 tribes of Israel into two groups. So six tribes would stand on Mount Gerizim and would shout out blessings to the people on the other side. The other six tribes would stand on Mount Ebal and they would shout out curses to the other side. And they would list off this litany of curses and shout it back to the other side. So you can kind of picture the, two, the, 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 two, the 12 tribes of Israel broken up into, into two, six on one, six on the other, shouting back and forth to each other from these two mountains. It's just kind of a dramatic way of talking about the importance of obeying all the law. And the crescendo of the shouting curses back to the other tribes is in the last verse of Deuteronomy 27, which Paul quotes here in Galatians 3.10. Deuteronomy 27.26, Cursed be anyone 
who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now here's Paul's point in Galatians by quoting that description of uh, Deuteronomy 27. Regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you want to truly be righteous or accepted by God, all you have to do is obey His law perfectly. Perfectly. Now what do I mean by perfectly? Well, according to Old Testament tradition, there are 242 positive laws of God that we should keep, and there are 365 negative laws that we should not break. So if you add those two together, you need to perfectly keep 607 laws of God in order to be right before God. And by the way, not just keeping them by doing or not doing them, but also in your thought life and in what you say. You must perfectly keep all of God's laws in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, and this obedience needs to be comprehensive, personal, and perpetual. In other words, you need to be obedient 100% of the time with 100% accuracy. Now think of sports for a moment. I think about great free throw shooters in the history of the NBA. I think of people like Steph Curry, uh, Kevin Durant, some modern day players. I think back to even Larry Bird back in the day. Um, you can have like a 90 to 91% free throw average, which is huge. Like I think right now there's a guy in the NBA, I can't remember his name, he's got like a 93% free throw percentage. That's, that's high, that's very high. But you still come up six or seven or eight percent short. Ty Cobb has the highest batting average in MLB history with a .366. That was over 24 seasons, mostly with the Detroit Tigers. And as great as that is, it means that he still missed over 60% of the time. Aaron Rodgers, whether you, whatever you think of Aaron Rodgers, he has one of the highest QB passer ratings in recent history, 104.93, and yet he still has over 80 interceptions. So the greatest athletes in their respective sports never have 100% accuracy 100% of the time. And now think about your own life and heart. So none of us can keep the law of God comprehensively and perpetually and perfectly. James 2, 10 through 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now, Paul's second point is almost like the first, but it's worded in a different way. He brings up a hypothetical situation. Um, In verses 11 and 12 here in Galatians chapter 3, he quotes from two Old Testament passages that both contain the words, shall live, in them. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Leviticus 18.4 and 5, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live... By them, I am the Lord. He shall live by them if he does them. Here's the point. If you could, hypothetically, obey the law perfectly, comprehensively, and perpetually, you would be accepted by God. You would live. You would be counted righteous if you hypothetically could do that. 
In other words, what, what is true, Paul is saying here, was true for Adam. If Adam had done that, if he had obeyed God's law not to eat of the tree, and he had done that obedience perpetually and perfectly and never transgressed, he would have earned right standing with God through his obedience. And the same thing holds true today. If you hypothetically could keep all of God's law in thought, word, and deed, 100% perfection, 100% of the time, you would earn righteousness with God. But we know that we can't. So none of us can perfectly keep God's law with 100% accuracy 100% of the time. It's an impossibility. So Paul's overall message is that nobody on the planet can successfully do that, which means that all people are under a curse. So God's law in the covenant of works still stands true. It was true for Adam. It's true for us. In other words, God's law says you need to obey perfectly. And if you do, you will attain righteousness. You will earn life. Now for Adam, he failed the covenant of works. And because of his failure, we are all born under the covenant of works as fallen in Adam, and we in no way can do that, but that's still God's obligation. And so God answers that obligation through the covenant of grace where he requires not obedience perfectly to the law, but faith in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. If you have faith in Christ, you shall live. It's not by your works, but by faith. And that faith that is required is given to you in the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. When He regenerates you, He makes you both willing and able to come in faith because you could not come in faith and you were not willing before. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 19, says this, All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. We know Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I've done is I've answered Leighton Flowers in the provisionist first assertion or first objection. You've got to demonstrate to us, Calvinist, that it was God's intention from the very beginning for us to fulfill God's law in order to attain righteousness. And I think I've demonstrated that. From Genesis 2 in the covenant of works to Galatians 3, I think I've been demonstrated that it, that it was God's intention for us to fulfill the law's demands to attain righteousness. So in our systematic theology, in Reformed theology, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace answer these questions in a covenantal framework, in a federal headship type issue with Adam being the federal head of the human race. And what he did, he represented all of us, and his sin becomes our sin. His guilt becomes our sin and our guilt. So let's explore the second assertion 
that we also hear from provisionists, and this is probably the more popular one. Why would God command sinners to repent and believe if they cannot do that based upon you Calvinist understanding of total inability? That makes God unjust because God is requiring us to do something that we can't do. So how in the world can God hold us responsible if we can't do that, and it's something that we can't do because of God's decree that we can't do that because of the fall or because of reprobation or whatever. It makes God unjust. And so basically what Leighton Flowers says is basic common sense tells us that if one ought to do something, he can do it. This is especially true if one is punished for his failure to do that which is expected. Now he appeals to common sense. Just common sense. If, you, if you're told that you have to do something, then you must automatically have the ability to do it. It's just common sense. Now let's explore this. But before we get to moral and spiritual inability from birth that renders us unable to come to faith in Christ without the effectual call and sovereign regeneration, let's just look at some biblical examples of God issuing a command that he knows is impossible for us to fulfill. So here's the question. Does God command in the Bible people to do what they are unable to do and hold them responsible for that? Yes. Does God issue commands that cannot be fulfilled? In other words, does ought, just by common sense, mean can? Just because God issues a command doesn't mean that we have the ability to fulfill it. Well, let's go back to the law. Let's go back to the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments are God's law codified in writing with his very finger, engraven in stone, kept in the Ark of the Covenant for all perpetuity, that this is God's moral binding law. Exodus 19, 7 and 8. Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Okay, they hadn't at this point received the Ten Commandments yet. Moses in chapter 19 of Exodus gets the people prepared to receive the Ten Commandments. And it, before they even receive them, the people are very confident. They're, they're, they pledge absolute commitment to the Word of God. All this we will do. We'll do all of this. All the words, we'll obey everything you tell us to do, God. Okay, then God gives the Ten Commandments. And obviously we don't have time to go over all the Ten Commandments, but hopefully you know what those are. But then later on in Exodus 24, after giving the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 24, 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now there's an attitude here of the people that they can fulfill what God is calling them to do. In other words, God says, I am commanding you to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. You cannot break the Ten Commandments. And the people confidently say, we can do this. We have the ability to do this. All this we will do. In Deuteronomy 5, 1-5, this is the... 
Deuteronomy is basically the second generation on the, on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is preaching a sermon to that new generation. And he reminds them of what happened with their parents back at Mount Sinai when the Lord appeared to them and what their parents went through at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so you find this in Matthew 5, 1 through 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up in the mountain. And then Moses gives the Ten Commandments again. So let me just ask a question. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, is God commanding people to do what they possibly cannot do? And the answer is yes. God is commanding people to do what they cannot do. And Jesus even makes it harder in the Sermon on the Mount because he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So, In the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law of God, God is explicitly commanding people to do what He knows they cannot do, and He holds them accountable for not obeying that law. So anytime a provisionist says God would not command people to do what they cannot do because it's common sense, well, just go look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, God is commanding people to do what they cannot do. Now, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is Jesus issuing a command here? With the word must there, it is a command. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, is that a command that Jesus is giving to people that they cannot possibly fulfill? Absolutely. Can anybody be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect? No. But it's a demand. Now, this is in relation to God's moral law. God is issuing a moral law to the people, and they cannot fulfill it. So God is issuing a command or a set of commands that he knows the people cannot do or fulfill. Now let's go to Jesus' healings. Because when you think about some of the times that Jesus healed in his ministry, you can see the issue of physical ability. Okay, so this is not talking about moral law. This is just talking about physical ability. So remember in Mark chapter 2, the paralytic, uh, his friends drop him through the roof kind of interrupt Jesus' teaching and they drop him through the roof and they make a big commotion in Mark chapter 2. And then the Pharisees get all um, upset and Jesus reads their mind. And in Mark 2, 9 through 12, Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. 
Now, the point of this healing is not so much that Jesus healed a paralytic. That's important. But it's the, the important part is that he had authority to forgive sins. But I want you to notice that Jesus tells this man to do something that he cannot do. Can a paralytic who was brought in through the roof by his four friends, is he physically able to get up and walk? Is Jesus, Jesus is issuing a command, get up, pick up your mat, go home. Well, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. You're commanding the man to do something he physically can't do. Yes, but did you notice that in the command itself, when Jesus calls this man to pick up his mat, that the power comes in the call and that the man is able to do that? Before he was not able, Jesus commanded him to do something he was not able to do, but in the power of the call and the power of the healing, the man was able to get up and walk. So Jesus commands a man to physically do something that he's not able to do. Right, let's think about the man that, was, that had the withered hand. In Luke chapter 6, 6-11, on another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now the point of this parable is not so much the withered hand, but it's the healing on the Sabbath and Jesus having being Lord of the Sabbath, and that's more the teaching there. But just a, a secondary issue is Jesus commands the guy to stretch out your hand. Well, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. He's got a withered hand. He can't do what you're asking him to do. He, can't he has a physical disability. He's unable to do what you're commanding him to do. Jesus, you're commanding him to do something he can't do. Stretch out your hand. But the man stretches out his hand because, again, in the call, in the command that Jesus gives, there's the power to fulfill the command. It wasn't there before, but when Jesus commands, when Jesus heals, the power of the call creates the ability all right, let's go to one more example. Lazarus. Lazarus was the friend of Jesus, Mary and Martha's brother. He died. He was in the tomb for three days. Jesus goes to the tomb and weeps. Let's pick up in John eleven forty one through 44. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me when he had said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come out the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth Jesus said to them unbind him and let him go now I want you to notice the miracle here Jesus does not go in and grab Lazarus and bring him out he doesn't command the people to go in and bring Lazarus out. Jesus calls in a loud voice for Lazarus to come out, and it was the power and authority of the word of Christ issuing the command that brought life. And so here's the issue. 
Jesus is commanding a dead man to do what a dead man can't do. It's just common sense that the Lord would never command somebody to do something that they couldn't do. If the Lord commands it, you must have the ability. Well, Jesus commands a dead man to come out. And what happens? Again, what we've seen in the healings. There's the power in the call. The power of the call creates the ability for the obedience to the command. And so can a dead man just come to life and walk out? No, it's, it's a miracle. And that's exactly what Jesus does to you and me. He calls us to come alive. And when he sends the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into your life, there's something called the new birth. Regeneration. It's new life. He causes you to be born again. He makes you alive. So in the law of God, the Ten Commandments, God is commanding something that people cannot fulfill. In the healings of Jesus, when it comes to physical ability or even death, Jesus is commanding people to do what they cannot do. To the paralyzed man, stand up, pick up your mat. To the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. To the dead man, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And the point is, in all of those, the power of the call creates the response. I hope you get that. The power of the call creates the response. In other words, what overcomes the inability? The sovereign call of the Savior. Now, when it comes to our new birth, when it comes to our being converted to Christ, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit creates within us the ability to respond. So God is like he did in these, like Jesus did in these healings. To us who are spiritually dead, God is calling us to do something we cannot do, but the call creates the response. Now, let's think about the law for a moment. Well, we can't obey the law in and of ourselves. But do you know that there's a new covenant promise given in the Old Testament of what would happen in the new birth with God's law? So, Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. God says, I'm going to put my law in their heart. I will write it on their hearts. In other words, there's an inability to obey God's law. And so God has to do something to create ability. He has to change the heart. He has to write it in the heart. He has to create a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. This is God speaking. I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Very, very important here. We sometimes, don't, we sometimes pay a lot of attention to the God. God gives us a new heart. I'll put my, my, my spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And, and that's a sovereign work of God. But notice what the result is. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause a change in you to give you the ability to fulfill what I'm asking you to do that before you could not do. Could we walk in God's statutes? Could we obey his rules? Could we respond positively to God in our dead, stony heart condition? No. But when the effectual call comes through the Holy Spirit's power of regeneration, the call creates the faith to respond positively. See, a fundamental change has to happen. Jeremiah 13, 23 can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You are fundamentally unable to do what God requires. Just like the Ethiopian can't change his skin or the leopard can't change his spots, something fundamentally has to happen in you to overcome that inability. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the tree. Matthew 7, 17 through 18, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. So fundamentally, a diseased tree cannot produce anything positive or rise above its essential nature of corruption. In the same way, those who are spiritually diseased through the corruption of sin cannot produce anything positive that would result in the good fruit of repentance and faith in Christ. So again, what must happen? The fundamental nature of the tree must change. The tree must change from being a diseased tree to a healthy tree. Well, how does it do that? Can a a tree do that itself? Now, the provisionist would say, just because you're spiritually diseased doesn't mean that you can't admit that you're infected. Doesn't mean you can't cry out. Just because you can't Submit to God's law just because you can't please God doesn't mean that you can cry out to God and ask Him to save you. But what are unsaved people doing by acknowledging that they're diseased? They're saying, I can't change my fundamental nature. Admitting that you can't change is not the same thing as undergoing a radical change. Merely admitting that you're a sinner does not change your nature so that you can produce good fruit. Something outside of you needs to come in and overcome that disease and transform you from the inside out. Again, this is regeneration. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the new birth so that you would be willing and able to repent and believe. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six sixty five. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. So there is a spiritual and moral inability to do what God requires. Whether that's going all the way back to the Ten Commandments, whether that's raising your hand if it's withered, whether that's standing up if you've been paralyzed, whether that's coming out of the grave if you've been dead, or whether that's coming to faith in Christ if you're spiritually dead. 
All throughout the Bible, God issues commands that we are not able to fulfill. And the power of the call of regeneration creates the positive response. So let's go back to that Romans 8 passage that we started with. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, very emphatically here, let's bring it all together. Paul is saying that you cannot submit to God's law. And you cannot please God. Now, provisions would say, obviously we are tracking with you, reformed people, in that you cannot submit to God's law. You cannot obey God's law perfectly in order to be saved. We, that's basically what Paul's saying, is that you cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law so as to be counted righteous. You can't do that if you're in the flesh. Okay, but let's just, let's bring everything out to what is God's law. God's law is anything that he commands. It's not just narrowed to the Ten Commandments, although that is his moral law, his binding law, but anything in the Bible where God issues a command is his law. Anything that God desires is what pleases him. So is repenting and believing and coming to faith in Christ, do those things please God? Absolutely. Are those things commands in the scriptures that we're to do? Yes, repent and believe for the kingdom of God's at hand. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. All throughout the scriptures we see these commands issued for people to believe in Christ. And so it comes back to that issue. If God issues a command for a person to believe, the provisionist would say it's just common sense that they have the ability to do it. And what I've tried to demonstrate in this podcast is just because God issues a command, it does not mean by common sense that he can do it. As a matter of fact, all throughout the scriptures, God is issuing commands that are impossible to fulfill unless God does the work in the call to overcome the inability. We are spiritually and morally unable to come to faith in Christ, which pleases God, which is God's law. We cannot do that without the effectual call. And so when the Holy Spirit does call us, when the Holy Spirit calls us to salvation, just like Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, just like Jesus told the man with the withered hand to raise his hand, just as Jesus told the paralytic to stand up, God does that work in our hearts to give us what we couldn't do before. We could not come to Christ. We could not place our faith in Christ. It was an impossibility because of our deadness to sin. But in the call, the call created the power and the ability and the willingness to do that which God commanded that we could not do before. Namely, repent and believe. And so it goes all the way back to the covenant of works with the role of the law and then the whole issue of moral and spiritual inability does ought necessarily and automatically mean can. And so these are two distinct differences 
between reform theology and provisionist theology. And so we need to understand these differences so that we're not talking past one another. Again, I would like to see a more robust either um, denial of the covenant of works and interaction with the covenant of works. Again, maybe I haven't listened enough to the provisionists to understand where they land on the covenant of the works. And they probably, I'm just going to make a conjecture here. I'm going to make a guess. Because they do not hold to the 1689 or the Westminster Confession, and because they're not considered Reformed theology, they probably just deny the covenant of works. It's not even, it's not even there. They don't, they don't subscribe to it. But I'd like for them to say, we do not subscribe to the covenant of works, and here's the reason why. Okay, what's your understanding of Genesis chapter 2? What's your understanding of Adam's federal headship? How do you understand all these things that Paul talks about in especially Galatians chapter 3? And then the second big defining issue that's the point of contention is the issue of does by common sense, does ought mean can? If God issues a command, by common sense, doesn't it just mean that we have the ability to fulfill it? Well, I hope I've demonstrated that no. Biblically, not just by common sense, but biblically, all throughout the Bible, God issues commands that we cannot fulfill. So then, what happens? God overcomes that inability with the effectual call that produces the positive response to come. Well, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. If you would go to iTunes or to your favorite place to listen to this podcast, I'd love for you to give me a positive review and rating. You can go to seancole.net to get all my contact information. You can friend me on Facebook and Twitter. I love to interact with you on social media. If you do have a question or a concern or maybe a future topic that you'd like me to address, I'd love for you to contact me. And so I really do appreciate all the listeners that are, um, especially you new listeners, I've noticed through some of the... um, the analytics that I get on feedback for, from the, the podcast downloads that there seems to be a lot new, of new listeners. And so if you're a new listener to Understanding Christianity, thank you for listening. And would you share this with your friends and those that you think would benefit from it? Well, you've been listening to Understanding Christianity. Let's all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.